New Thinking Allowed, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Meshlove. Today, we're going to look at philosophical specters, hauntings, and exorcisms. My guest is Jacob W. Glazer, an adjunct professor in the Department of Positive Human Development and Social Change at Life University USA, located in Georgia. He's also an online adjunct professor in the Department of Applied Psychology at New York University Steinhardt Campus. In addition, he's a licensed counselor with a background in parapsychology. Jacob is the author of Arts of Subjectivity, a new animism for the post-media era. This is really going to be an in-depth exploration of some of the nuances of the deconstructionist movement in philosophy and the postmodernist, post-structuralist philosophy of Jacques Derrida. Now, I will turn to the internet interview. Welcome, Jacob. It's a pleasure to see you once again. Hi, Jeff. Good to be with you. Your work, I think, is um, very unusual for a parapsychologist in that you're delving quite deeply into uh, European philosophy, phenomenology, uh, post-structuralism, post-modernism, where uh, terms that are familiar to parapsychologists, such as specters, hauntings, and exorcism, are used in a philosophical context. And it strikes me that uh, the, the two contexts are not completely unrelated from each other. Yeah, that, that, that's right, Jeff. Um, I think that, uh, you know, in parapsychology, we see some of these concepts as uh, more material, maybe more concrete as entities that actually may or may not exist in the world. And I think, uh, you know, what we do uh, philosophically is we use these as kind of meta- metaphors in some ways and try and... Uh, explore how these metaphors or concepts can kind of help shape thinking and thinking about abstract concepts like time, uh, you know, economic systems, uh, even space. And I think, you know, what we're going to get into today, Derrida does a really good job of that um, in his uh, book, uh, Specters of Marx. He refers, I understand, to uh, the opening lines of the Communist Manifesto published in the mid-19th century, in, in which uh, Marx and his co-author Engels write that, that a specter is haunting Europe. That's right. That's that, that famous line, that famous line in the, the Communist Manifesto. And I think, you know, you know Derrida runs with that. You know, he takes that and he kind of, um, you know, in the spirit of deconstruction, uh, which is his kind of philosophical project um, that he inaugurates, he, you know, uh, explores how that sentence that a specter is haunting Europe, um, how that might be very literal in some ways. And the way he does that is through his understanding of temporality. 
I, I understand he also points out that, uh, interestingly, Marx himself was influenced by Shakespeare, and Shakespeare in uh, many of his plays, particularly Hamlet, uh, uses specters as, as a dramatic ploy. Yes, indeed. Indeed. And there's this, you know, I think there's this interesting element um, that uh, the, you know, the trope or the metaphor of a specter has um, for thinking about uh, complex ideas like time and space. And it's this what Derrida calls um, an absence, an absent presence. So the specter's there, right? The specter's there in a certain sense, but it, also, kind of um, alongside that specific sense, the specter is also absent. And so it's not, strictly speaking, I suppose, a contradiction, right? It's more along the lines of what Derrida, I think, in his, his work uh, called Of Gra Grammatology, it's what he calls an aporia, or kind of a kind of a paradox in some ways. Well, I think uh, paradox is very important. Uh, it has the same uh, root as parapsychology, and it suggests, <laughs> you know, when I first got my uh, doctoral degree in parapsychology, uh, uh, Science News ran a story calling me the first of the paradox. <laughs> Uh, so, but, but the very idea of a paradox, uh, is, uh, I think essential when we look at psi phenomenon because, uh, they, by their very nature are, are paradoxical. They shouldn't happen at all. And yet they do. And I think that Derrida is putting his finger on something very important, uh, as I recall, uh, from your interesting paper on his work, he comes up with the concept of hauntology, uh, and he says it ought to replace ontology, the philosophical study of what is real. Indeed, and, 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 and on many accounts, you know, that is his kind of uh, strong maneuver, philosophical maneuver that he makes, Inspectors of Mars, is that he comes up with what traditionally in Western philosophy has been called ontology. Uh, like, like you say, Jeff, the, the study of being, right? The study of being, what is, what isn't, what is real, what is not real. And, uh, the, the, the tactic that Derrida makes here is to introduce how being as present, looking through the lens of ontology is also contains a kind of mirror or shadow. Kind of a specter that is um, haunting that presence. I think this is very, very significant for a philosopher to come up with. And uh, I suppose many of our viewers are, they may have heard of the name Derrida. He's really one of the most influential philosophers of the 20th century. And I think uh, we would uh, do our viewers a service if we could talk a little bit about his background and how he came to be such an important philosopher. Certainly. So, uh, uh, you know, I think what comes to mind uh, right away is that uh, Derrida comes out of um, linguistics. Um, so he studied under Saussure, who was a structural structural linguist. That's uh, a specific approach to understanding the way that words and meaning uh, function in language. And so Derrida evolves that position and what what's sometimes called uh, decompositional 
decompositionalism or post-structuralism. And so looking at the way that, um, uh, you know, his, one of Derrida's famous formulas that he comes up with is that there is, there is no outside the text. Okay. So, um, the text itself contains the kind of inherent, um, meaning, uh, or anti-meaning to, to, to borrow a phrase from, from my paper, um, that, kind of necessarily deconstructs deconstructs itself in some ways. And so that project of deconstruction showing how the text contradicts itself within the its parameters, um, he carries that spirit of critique forward. And the, the way he does that in Spectres of Marx is that he applies that same procedure to Marxism. And, um, you know, he has, a, again, you know, a lot to say on the way that uh, kind of the historical heritage of, of Europe and of Western civilization has, again, been haunted by this kind of oppositional logic that necessarily deconstructs itself if we are able to kind of bring to the fore presuppositions and contradictions and um, I, that's really at the heart, I think, uh, of Derrida's uh, project. My understanding is that he wrote the specter of Marx uh, at a time when, after the fall of uh, the Soviet Union, at a time when many uh, thinkers were saying communism is dead for all intents and purposes. And uh, what Derrida was trying to maintain is that the communist critique of capitalist society uh, is not at all dead. Even, even if communism per se is dead, the, the critique of capitalism is stronger than ever. Indeed, indeed. And, and not only that, but he, I think Derrida wants to carry the banner of, uh, Marxism forward. And, uh, and just as you say, Jeff, that spirit of critique, um, that is so kind of intrinsic to a Marxist position, uh, Derrida reappropriates that under his own um, auspices. And I think that he fits well with a lot of his colleagues in uh, the kind of post-structuralist, post-modernist camp. Or I think what may be a better term for that would be today called critical theory. Or even there's, you know, in, in uh, Ian Parker is a critical psychologist um, that applies these kind of uh, critical procedures to, um, you know, understanding the way if you want to take like a Foucauldian perspective, the way power functions in institutions, or at the level of language or the or meaning, uh, to take a more deconstructionist perspective, the way power functions or doesn't function um, within um, certain texts or certain uh, language communities, one could say. I don't know how familiar our viewers are with deconstruction uh, in in general. I think it's had a massive influence in academia, particularly in terms of uh, the feminist uh, theories deconstructing the male dominance in practically every discipline. Uh, but it goes much beyond that. It does. It has had a you know some of its influence has. Um you know, for better or for worse, has waned, um, I feel, um, in the last several decades, um, certainly after the culture wars um, in the 80s, you know, where it was um, 
kind of proliferated in literary departments across the United States and elsewhere. Um, it sits in a precarious place right now. Um, I think especially, um, you know, given, uh, you know, the current administration, administration in the United States, um, what's, you know, has been kind of famously called the post-truth world. You know, I think deconstruction, while certainly um, doesn't, you know, argue that there is no fact or that there is no truth. Um, nonetheless, it sits in this kind of strange position right now. And so I think it'll be um, interesting to see how it evolves and where it goes. Um, but nonetheless, you know, Jeff, I think you're certainly right that uh, feminists, um, critical race theorists, um, if we want to talk about, you know, present realities going on right now, uh, you know, critical race theorists have used the, the methods and procedures of deconstruction along with queer theorists to look at the way that um, power is inherited by a very specific, uh, in some ways, group of people, or it's carried along through certain social institutions or certain ways of doing language would be a, a different way to put that. I mean, I am under the impression that the postmodernists have taken the position that there is no such thing as a bedrock absolute truth. Uh, would you disagree with that? I would. I, I would. I would because I believe it depends, you, you know, to, to do a very, um, to be rigorous and nuanced in our thinking. I think we have to look at the specific theorist or philosopher or author that we're talking about. Um, you know, it may be a red herring to say that, you know, postmodernists reject all truth claims, you know, but, you know, I've heard the kind of uh, cliched argument that that claim in itself is a universalist claim. So to claim that, you know, all truth claims are rejected is making a substantive claim in itself. So it contradicts itself in some ways, but, um, you know, I, I, I think postmodernism has gotten a bad rap. Um, and I think that, um, you know, if we look more at the, the ideas and thinkers and like critical psychology, um, even deconstruction or, or more strictly speaking, post-structuralism, you know, I think, um, uh, we might, uh, um, you know, find, find better results. It does seem to me that what Derrida is suggesting by the uh, word hauntology, and I think it's amazing how many words uh, Derrida has coined uh, himself, uh, and, and I think you're engaged in a similar project. <laughs> I'm pretty sure your writing also coins a few words along the way. Uh, but isn't he suggesting that the concept of the specter is a new concept in a way. It's, it's sort of halfway between being and non-being. Uh, and, and it has to be acknowledged as, as a, as a new ontological category. So it's not necessarily ontological. Um, you know, I think I have here that this, you know, it might be helpful just to quote Derrida here, his definition of ontology. He says that um, ontology opposes it only in a movement of exorcism. Ontology is a conjuration. So we can see that there's this, this double movement where there's this kind of exorcism of the substance, 
if we want to return to kind of old-fashioned metaphysical tropes. Um, at the same time, there's a conjuration. So there's this bringing into being and this kind of ex- ex- expulsion that happens. Um, whereas that's ontology. Whereas conversely, if we look at, you know, the, like, let's say the ontology of Heidegger, who, you know, is a famous, uh, uh, in, in a lot of ways, I suppose, a famous teacher of Derrida or follows in that kind of lineage. Um, Heidegger doesn't have that same kind of violent connotation, um, that ontology brings about. Um, nor does Heidegger have that, the same kind of metaphorics that fit into the, the trope of a specter, this kind of haunting or tormenting or even torturing of the substance. You know, for Heidegger, it's more of a, a playful unveil, un, unveiling or revealing this kind of, uh, much more gentle kind of subtext. And for Derrida, you know, that, that just certainly isn't the case. You know, one of our uh, guests on, on the New Thinking Aloud series, the philosopher Jason Reza Giorgiani, yeah, I did an interview with him about five years ago on a, a concept that he developed called the spectral revolution, and in which he felt that we, we really need to look at, and I may be misinterpreting him, but I think he's talking about entities like devas, demons, uh, daemons, deities, jinns, elementals, fairies, gnomes, uh, uh, discarnate entities uh, of all sorts that, uh, they exist in spectral form and, uh, we need to acknowledge, uh, that he saw the spectral revolution as, as one in which, uh, our mainstream, uh, acknowledged reality would begin to include, uh, these uh, sorts of elements. And I think he was also building on Derrida. I think that's great. I think that, um, you know, I think if, you know, Derrida's project, I think is a little bit different um, because he's not necessarily, you know, naming these beings or, you know, developing a kind of cosmology per se. Um, but certainly, you know, uh, Jason Giorgiani's work, I think, uh, really does build on this notion of ontology that Derrida philosophically introduces and kind of gives us, I suppose, the conceptual equipment, you know, to think about how might things like elves or fairies or ghosts or jinn, how might these things exist when we can't see them? Yeah, occasionally they do become quite visible. There are all sorts of reports of people who uh, claim that they're quite tangible, at least at times, uh, and then they can evaporate. Uh, but I'd like to push this a little further. You mentioned uh, the term exorcism, that, that Derrida describes the relationship between ontology and hauntology as involving exorcism of some sort. What, what does he mean when he invokes the, that word? Uh, to, I suppose to build on uh, what I was saying earlier, um, you know, I, I think this kind of exorcism gets at, uh, there's a certain violence um, that hauntology brings to bear on understanding the way that, uh, the world works. And this kind of, um, if we, I suppose to put it into different language, if we're to build something, something else must be destroyed. 
And I, you know, that, uh, you know, brings to mind, uh, uh, um, you know, images from Hinduism, uh, like Shiva the Destroyer. Um, you know, so there's this element that, um, destruction is the necessary condition of creation. Um, and I think, um, you know, what Derrida does is to slightly shift, uh, the, the semantics or the metaphors to, what I would consider um, appropriately parapsychological. Um, and so he uses, you know, these, these paranormal or uh, spiritual terms, right? Like exorcism versus conjuration. And that those are the two movements in hauntology. You have an exorcism, but you also at the same time have a conjuration. And, um, you know, we could oppose that to, you know, more, uh, Hinduistic terms like creation, destruction. And so there's a, a certain, I suppose, homology between the two um, ways of thinking about this. Now, I'm under the impression that when Marx talked about a specter that was haunting Europe, he was referring to communism and he was, which in the mid 19th century was a, a very fledgling movement. Uh, so maybe he was giving himself a little too much credit when he said it's haunting uh, Europe. And and I think he goes on to say that the uh, uh, capitalist regimes and uh, monarchies and so on that were active in Europe at that time were trying to exercise the specter of, of communism. And uh, now, writing in the present, uh, after the fall of the uh, Soviet Union, uh, Derrida is sort of suggesting that, well, communism may have been exercised, but uh, it's, the specter still remains. Certainly. And I think, you know, Derrida develops that further in Specters of Marx. And he, it's a, a, a concept he or, uh, comes up with um, that I employ in my paper called global Latinization. So, you know how we have the colloquial term of globalization. You know, we think about how globalization has swept the world through technology, media, capitalism, so on and so forth. Well, Derrida comes up with this term global Latinization. So the, the world is, and this is where elements of what is kind of elements of religion or what is more theoretically called messianism come into play. Derrida's examination of messianisms through the various earth religions, right? Like the expect expectation of a coming Messiah. Um, and he sees, he doesn't like use the word um, globalization, but global Latinization grounds the kind of entrapment of the world in a uh, religious sense. So there's a religious, a Christian, more specifically, really a Christian root that has kind of flared up and has um, encircled the planet and is um, in a lot of ways, I suppose, strangling the planet uh, to death. And I think that um, part of Derrida's strategy here is to employ tropes that might challenge uh, typically held Christian ideas. And some of those tropes that we've used today have been exorcism, conjuration, uh, even, you know, torture, torment. Um, and so I think that, um, 
you know, I think Derrida is very, very aware of that. And I think his project, Inspectors of Mark, Inspectors of Marks, is specifically to try and deconstruct how the concept of messianism, um, or this kind of how we wait for the Messiah, and this is where his notion of temporality comes into play, that we're always waiting. We're waiting for, uh, you know, the, the, the apocalypse. We're waiting for the big culmination, the big event to happen. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, what I think Derrida points out is that, um, that in a lot of ways keeps people trapped. Not unlike how capitalism creates the proletariat. You know, it creates a different class system. Um, and so I think that, you know, what Derrida tries to do is to try and, in, in further develop or empty this messianism of, of content. And he develops this other concept, which he calls messianicity. Not, not to, uh, you know, say that he's, you know, creating all these ideas for no reason, right? Part of it, again, I think we have to ground ourselves in, in the method of deconstruction. And this is this kind of countering using, you know, metaphors or, or different figures to challenge kind of concretized notions that have been sedimented in language and in discourse. And so that's what Derrida is doing here. I think he's uh, also ties this to the concept of justice that people think, you know, someday in the future, uh, the Messiah will come and there will be a reckoning and uh, all of the wrongs uh, will be corrected. Uh, is he there by trying to suggest, no, that we have to work harder to correct those wrongs to find justice in the here and now and, and not wait uh, to some distant future time? Is, is that what he's getting at? I, I think that's a great practical and pragmatic way to put it, Jeff, you know, that we, you know, this kind of idea of, of just waiting, deferring kind of social justice, deferring social action, I think is um, pathological. And I think Derrida is pointing that out, you know, not only is it pathological, but it's intrinsic. I, you know, he makes this, this claim, Inspectors of Marx, that this kind of anticipation is intrinsic to capitalism. And so if we just wait, um, you know, we'll, you know, gather enough money so that we can safely retire. It's this kind of um, passivity, I think, that creates this kind of the, the labor class, you know. And so I think that um, to demand social justice now um, is... You know, I think part of what Derrida is getting at with, with trying to critique um, uh, the kind of time structure of messianism. There's a sense that I have that many people who are unhappy with the idea of the new world order are, are basing their thinking on, on Derrida because in a sense, the new world order, uh, is represented, especially the way it was used by uh, George H.W. Bush as, you know, the triumph of capitalism over Marxism. 
And uh, the idea that we are now in a, in a global culture, which is uh, capitalist and, and the marketplace is now global and everybody will have color TVs and, and cell phones. And, and Derrida is, is pointing out, you know, we're still uh, destroying the planet. We still have huge masses of people who are starving and uh, uh, the, the social problems cr that capitalism has created are, are st strong than ever. I think he even goes so far as to say the world has never been in worse shape. You're right. You're right. And he calls this the, you know, the new world order. And so he, the term Derrida uses is the new international. And so one of the ways he looks at this is that, you know, on some level, we still have countries, we still have, you know, these, these notions of uh, uh, borders, um, you know, this kind of notion of separation. But on another level, I think Derrida sees a much covert power working behind the scenes, so to speak. And that, that, um, so that behind the scenes is this kind of specter that Derrida is trying to warn us about that comes along with this the capitalist system. And the specter doesn't have borders. The specter doesn't abide by the laws of different nations. It's this much more um, dispersed and, and pervasive kind of power that um, does what it wants in a lot of ways. And I think that, uh, you know, you're right to, to maintain that if we can see evidence of that today in Derrida, um, would echo this point in how capitalism has wreaked havoc on the planet and the e ecology of, uh, the various, um, you know, uh, 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 ecosystems around the world. And so I think that, um, you know, I think that it's a warning in a lot of ways, um, Derrida gives us. And I think that, um, you know, I think you know, we need to um, pay attention to that warning because I think that that, that ghost, that global ghost, that global ghost of global Latinization will rear its head. And I think we're seeing that today in many ways. Um, certainly in the United States, we're seeing this specter of racism um, haunt or pop up um, all around, uh, all around our large cities and elsewhere. And, um, what I think what the way Derrida would analyze that is that there's, there's this kind of something that hasn't been dealt with. Right. And so that's that grinding of the exorcism versus conjuration. So I think he would, and I think he would see these kinds of, um, you know, protests and, and um, so on and so forth. He would see these things as a positive development. Um, because that's part of that kind of violence of hauntology, this kind of, um, you know, there's this exorcism while there's this also this conjuration. And so I think, you know, that ghost or that specter, that global ghost, um, is, is, is rearing its head in a lot of ways. And, you know, it'll be both interesting and scary. Uh, you know, to stick with the metaphors that Derrida uses to see, you know, how this, um, is going to kind of play out.
I think it's fascinating, Jacob, that at around the same time that Marx uh, wrote that there's a specter haunting Europe. Uh, the spiritualist movement in the mid 19th century became a worldwide movement as, as well. And the spiritualist movement led to psychical research and parapsychology. We now have 150 years of data, uh, in, in this, these areas. And yet, you know, the mainstream institutions of global culture, the scientific establishment, the business establishment, pretty much uh, goes on with very few exceptions uh, as if 150 years of documented evidence of, in effect, real specters didn't exist. It's become, uh, you know, highly marginalized uh, in a global sense. And I wonder if there isn't some correlation there. There's a, a certain uh, tradition uh, or heritage, what Derrida calls phallogocentrism. I know that's a mouthful to get a hold of, but there's this. Um, <laughs> <or> he, <laughs> he puts it um, el elsewhere. He puts it. Uh, he calls it the metaphysics of presence. Let, let's break that word down. Phallogocentrism. So, uh, so. Phallus, right? The beginning of the word, right? There's a, it is an allusion to the phallus, which is the, the male genital or private parts. Uh, the middle of the word logo or logos is the, the Greek, uh, or I'm sorry, the, the Latin word for the word or language. And then, uh, centrism, uh, this kind of, um, uh, privilege, I suppose we could say that has been afforded to both the phallus and into the word. And so, uh, you know, again, that's one of those kind of um, uh, neologisms that Derrida creates. But nonetheless, what he, I think, is trying to point out is that, indeed, uh, the heritage of Western civilization specifically has been predominantly... Uh, a patriarchal uh, kind of heritage. And it also has privileged um, writing over speech. And that's a whole separate, it's, you know, it's a very um, uh, advanced and developed argument that Derrida makes with regards to that. The way that, the, why writing, privileging writing over speech has caused or has created kind of the state of affairs of where we find ourselves. Um, and he, you know, he goes into that quite a bit, but um, nonetheless, um, you know, I think the way that to return to your, your comment or your question, Jeff, the way that foul logocentrism relates to the kind of ostr ostracization of paranormality, you know, is that, Certainly from the Enlightenment on, we, there has been a certain privilege afforded to certain methods of science, what we would call scientism. Specific kinds of experiments are taken to be more true than others. And, um, you know, this, you know, certainly with the rise of, of qualitative research, this has been a great ad advance, in my opinion, for, you know, parapsychology and for the study of the paranormal. 
um, that we take seriously this, the stories and the narratives and the experiences, the lived experiences of claimants and uh, participants. And, you know, I think that data um, is just as valid, if not more valid than the quantitative data that the physicalists or the experimentalists gather. And so, um, you know, it would take a bit to kind of sustain that argument. Um, but I think the way that Derrida would kind of enter that, that, um, pathway would be, um, through this understanding of phallogocentrism, um, that is intrinsic to, um, Western thinking. You, you know, it dawns on me just as we're speaking, Jacob, here on the New Thinking Aloud channel, I try to present uh, what I regard as the best, most uh, reliable information concerning the paranormal. So I rely heavily on authors such as yourself with published works. And I realize that as a result of that, my guests are predominantly white males, overwhelmingly uh, as a matter of fact, white males. And uh, today I was looking at a book written by a, a, a Native American um, who grew up on the Pine Ridge Reservation. He's had extremely profound experiences, but he doesn't have a doctoral degree like you have or like I have. And so his book is full of all sorts of grammatical uh, mistakes and, and constructions that I, I would normally regard as, as unacceptable, you know, not the King's English. And I'm beginning to rethink that, that uh, Maybe, uh, you know, by relying so heavily on people whose works have been published in books, uh, I may be excluding very important segments of uh, uh, people's experience. I think you're exactly right, Jeff, to be honest with you. And I think not, not to belabor the, the kind of data that's privileged in parapsychology, but that also speaks to a certain form of privilege. And I think, you know, we need to, as a discipline in parapsychology, we need to self-reflect on, you know, our members, um, you know, who we're, who we're, um, you know, holding up as colleagues, the kind of, do we have a diverse voices? And if we don't, then what does that say about our, our discipline? And what does that say maybe about our kind of presuppositions, our methods? Um, where did we get those methods from? Why do we still have those methods? Um, and so I think, um, you know, I think, yes, absolutely. I have been afforded a very privileged place and that has allowed me great advantage to be able to graduate with a PhD. And because I have done that, I have a, a certain standing. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, even to return to the level of writing that you brought up a bit ago with regard to the Native American um, author, um, Derrida would certainly uh, see the kind of policing of grammar and diction and syntax and all of those things that you pointed out as a, as a function of the, the very kind of phallogocentrism or the kind of power structure that keeps people um, subjugated. And so Derrida, I think, would, 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 would be on our side on this. And I think that, um, 
you know, I think to, to, to listen to the stories and to read the stories of, of people that, um, don't fit into a specific language community, right? And what I mean by that aren't able to write a certain way, um, so on and so forth. You know, I think we have, we have to put forth the effort, um, uh, to, to do that, um, because we're not taught to do that, unfortunately. Another thought that came to me in the course of our conversation is this battle that you pointed out between exorcism and conjuring. It, it strikes me that there are a lot of elements in our culture, and probably parapsychologists are amongst them, where we don't like to admit it, but we're actually endeavoring to conjure up a world in which psychic functioning is accepted and acknowledged. And uh, those people who call themselves skeptics and rational Nationalists, and we label them as uh, following a, the, the dogma of scientism. They're they're trying to exorcise that world. They don't want such a world. They think it's the rising tide of superstition. They want to banish it. And uh, it seems as if uh, that that's really the, the great metaphysical battle that's going on in our culture. Uh, and it has been going on for the last 150 years. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what uh, hauntology has to say about that is that there's going to, there, the more you kind of battle against it, the more that specter returns to haunt. Uh, and so, you know, there's this, again, you know, this back and forth of exorcism and conjuration. But, you know, nonetheless, if we look to, um, you know, a different project outside of deconstruction, you know, d developing maybe a certain worldview or cosmology that, um, you know, can be found in the work uh, in like paranthropology. I'm thinking about different forms of animism. Um, even in, in, in my book, The um, Arts of Subjectivity, I try and uh, sketch a way of looking at the world um, through a kind of animistic lens. And that just means the way that um, we are intertwined with spirits and, and different beings that we can't necessarily see. Um, and so um, while Derrida doesn't do that, you know, he gives us the tools to kind of bring about that, what Jason Giorgiani calls a spectral revolution. Well, Jacob Glazer, this has been a very exciting, interesting, profound conversation. I'm, I'm delighted to be able to share it with our, our viewers. You have a very unique and I think significant perspective on the world, Jacob. Thank you so much for being with me. Good to be with you, Jeff. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.